All right, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 142. We're actually going to look at two Psalms tonight, Psalm 142 and then Psalm 143. We're still in that section of Psalms that are personal in nature. We've mentioned that a couple of times over the past few weeks. Um, the, the, the word I is repeated over and over and over again. It's almost as though we get a peek into David's private prayer life and uh, his devotional times before Jesus. In Psalm 142, there is a, a cry of distress. What I think the theme there is, is, is David's loneliness. And the prescript there, a, a Davidic maskil, which I don't really know what is, and a lot of people don't either, um, when he was in a cave, a prayer, uh, we do know uh, something about the circumstances of David's life when he wrote uh, and prayed the psalm that is Psalm 142. David here helps us to know how we can pray during seasons of loneliness in our life. In Psalm 143, um, the, the request here is for direction. Most of the time, Psalm 143 is referred to as a psalm of repentance. And there is a moment in Psalm 143 when David appears to make a subtle confession of sin. But the biggest thing that David seems to be asking for in Psalm 143 is, Lord, show me what to do. And on that level, Psalm 143 should really resonate with us who pray and ask God in this particular area, can you show me what you want me to do? You know, not everything is black and white. There are some things that it's clear what God's mind is, what God's plan or will is. And, and then there's those areas of our life where we have to choose the best over the good instead of the good over the bad. Good over bad is an easy decision to make. Best over good is much more complicated. But, but here David helps us to see how we can pray through even the gray matter, ish, gray area issues and, and come to a conclusion that is uh, honoring of the Lord. So in Psalm 142, again, we learn how to pray when we're lonely. In Psalm 143, we learn how to pray when we don't know what to do. Let's look together first at Psalm 142. Verse 1 says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I plead aloud to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. I reveal my trouble to him. Although my spirit is weak within me, you know my way. Along this path I travel. They've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. No one stands up for me. There's no refuge for me. No one cares about me. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my shelter, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I'm very weak. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they're too strong for me. Free me from prison so that I can praise your name. The righteous will gather around me because you deal generously with me. I think that the difficulty of loneliness is something we can all sort of bear witness to. Um, and there are a number of ways that we can. From the senior adult who's lost their spouse, or maybe even the senior adult couple who've lost most of their friends. They're not as socially mobile as they once were. Their health doesn't allow them to be out and about, maybe even at church in the ways that they used to be. And there's a loneliness that sort of creeps in. 
to the middle-aged couple who just sent their last child off to college and mom's really struggling with empty nest syndrome. There's a loneliness that settles in with, with the quietness when the kids are all gone. Um, to the teenager who feels somewhat isolated, who may not be in the circle of friends they hope to be in, or maybe they've been ostracized in some way, there's, there's a loneliness that comes with that experience. Or the new believer who walked away from the only friends and family they ever knew to escape the temptations that so easily ensnare them and now are trying to navigate a new life in a community of people that they do not know. There's a loneliness that comes with that. At every stage of life, there are circumstances that lend themselves to loneliness. And if we don't gird ourselves, if we don't ready ourselves for that deep sense of loneliness that invariably comes, uh, chances are we'll make some bad decisions under those circumstances that will lead us astray. So I, I think, I'll, I look back on my teenage years and the many, 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 many bad decisions that were made that are often just the product of loneliness, not extended loneliness as though I was at home in my room in a season of despair. It took me about 30 seconds to be lonely or bored in my teenage years. And so in a fit of infinite wisdom, you make a decision to be with someone or in some place that may, be, that may not be the best. Um, it, it, this is a real struggle for many, many people. And I, and I think David helps us here. The circumstances of David's situation are enlightening also. In verse 1, David says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I plead aloud to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. I reveal my trouble to him. Those, those statements are repetitive. Um, the idea here is that earnestly David goes before God about his situation. Repeatedly, over and over and over and over, David returns to God about the business of his loneliness. Now, David is in a cave, and the interesting thing is that he's, he may be alone in the cave, but he's really not alone. And I'm not talking about being spiritually alone. Spiritually, we're never alone. God is always with us. I mean, there are people just outside the cave. <laughs> the problem is that the people just outside the cave want to kill him. He's alone in the midst of a crowd, um, but it's a crowd that would have him undone. Outside the cave is Saul and Saul's army, and they're there in the wilderness for the express purpose of killing David for a perceived opposition to Saul that is not real. He has been unfairly accused and because of this allegation David has been pursued in the wilderness. Now he finds himself separated from his friends hiding in a cave being pursued by a man who was once his friend. I think the relationship between Saul and David in David's early years is understated. When Saul was in deep distress, who was there for him? Who, who was it that was brought into the court to play beautiful music and to soothe the anxiety of Saul? When Saul was in the very place that David finds himself in the cave, it was David who was his comfort. Now the tables have turned. David is in the cave in a place of great anxiety, and it's Saul whom he once comforted, 
who's outside the cave, who's ready to have his hide. In verse 3, the Bible says, Although my spirit is weak within me, you know my way. Along this path I travel. They've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see no one stands up for me. There's no refuge for me. No one cares about me. Uh, if I had a dollar for every time I'd heard no one cares about me in the course of my ministry, I would be a very, very wealthy man. That, that is the sensation, isn't it? It's not in reality that no one cares about David, but that's certainly how he feels. It's not that there's no one who will stand for David, but that's certainly how he feels. And no one really wants to hear about the reality when their feelings tell them otherwise. It's just the way we feel. We usually don't even mean it when we say it. We just want to give voice to the way we feel and the pit of our loneliness. David's circumstance is an unfortunate one. His one-time friends have now abandoned him and have turned against him. And there he is in the darkness of that cave with only God at his side. You do know that you and God make a pretty good company, right? And there he is. In verse 5, David expresses his hope. He says, I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my shelter, my portion in the land of the living. That, that's his hope. That's his confession. You, you have to prayerfully insist that God is your satisfaction even when you're lonely. Um, there, is, there, is, there is value in insisting, in spite of what we feel, that the promises of God are true. I, I, I think we've been handcuffed at, at insisting on the value or um, appreciating the value of our confessing the promises of God during seasons of despair by the word of faith movement and this weird idea that we just speak things into existence which has no basis in the Bible. I'm not suggesting that at all. But there is value in confessing the promises of God and the truth of those promises in your life regardless of how you feel. Your feelings are fickle. They're not a good judge of truth. They will misguide you. They will deceive you. The worst advice that our culture ever gave young people, or people in general, is to follow your heart. The problem with your heart is that it is wicked, irreparably wicked. Only the gospel can turn your heart. And the remnants of that wickedness remain with you even after your conversion to faith in Jesus. From time to time, they will whisper untruths to you. They will convince you of falsehoods. It is good to preach to yourself and to your heart in seasons of despair the promises of God even when they feel far from you. David says, my hope is that God is my shelter, my portion. That is, he's all I have and he's all I need in the land of the living. There's no expectation here that David's going to have anything more than the presence of God in his life. You are my portion in the land of the living. You are all I have and you're all I need in the land of the living. What David is saying is, as long as I live, it looks like my life is going to be such that you're all I've got. 
And David resolves in that moment that, God, if you are all I have, then you're more than enough. Preach to yourself the promises of God and be satisfied in the provision that God has made for you. That's David's hope. Now, we really get to the nuts and bolts of David's prayer in the final two verses of Psalm 142. In verse 6, David says, Listen to my cry, for I'm very weak. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they're too strong for me. Now, you, you preach to yourself the promises of God, but that does not mean that we are naive uh, uh, or even in denial about the way we feel or the circumstances of our life. David said, you are my hope, you are my portion in the land of the living. You are all I have and you are all I need. But Lord, I need you to listen to my cry because I'm very weak. And I need you to rescue me from those who pursue me because it's more than what I can bear. When you get in a place where you're sensitive to the fact that you don't have a natural remedy for the problem that's been set before you, you're in just the right place to pray with, this, with the spirit, I believe, that the Lord intends, and you're in just the right place for God to do something extraordinary in your life. One of the really cool things about this whole process of transitioning is that you come away from, in my case, you come away from a ministry that has in some ways become old hat. I mean, you know everything that there is to know about that ministry, every prickly personality, every landmine that exists in the church, all of the pluses, all of the minuses, and you, and you can deceive yourself into believing that you have everything under control. And, and then when the Lord transitions you, then you are in ways that you have not been for a long time. I have been in ways that I have not been for a long time aware that I don't have anything under control. That it is entirely beyond my control. You know, I've been, I've been waiting for 15 years of ministry to just show up one Sunday and nobody be there. It's all volunteer. You know what I mean? I mean, we just come and we just expect people are going to be there, but I just keep waiting on nobody's there. You have, you have zero control as, as a pastor over a gazillion details of your ministry, and for that matter, the people under your charge. I, we don't appreciate how much of our life is really like that. Like, we think we control things. We think we have our thumb on issues. But the reality is God is up to a million unseen things even within the boundaries of what we think we have control over. He and he alone holds us together. He dictates the circumstances of our life for our good and for his glory. The sooner we become aware of or admit that we are not in control, the better off ultimately we all are. If you think through the things that really plague you, I know this is true for men, and I suspect that this is true of women as well. If you think through the things that you really struggle with the most, the issues that bother you in the innermost, it's the issues that make you most aware of your inability to control the circumstance. Health issues. It's not just life and death. It's not just death or the, our health being compromised. It's that we have zero control in that area of our life. When, when something happens that we cannot put our hands on and fix, we are most bothered by that. That's the most problematic for us because it's out of our control.
David says, honestly, God, this is too big an issue for me. The challenges before me are, are more than what I can deal with. They are, simply put, too strong for me. David confesses his weakness and his deep need for the Lord. There's a, a second thing here. He, he, he makes his petition. He asks in verse 7, Free me from prison so that I can praise your name. The, the prison he speaks of here is the cave. Emotionally, the prison he speaks of here is his loneliness. Free me from my despair. God, help me. Now, he's stated his confidence. It's not as though he's coming to God and he's just complaining and grumbling about the situation that he finds himself in. He has stated his, his confidence. You are all I need. He has made his confession. It's more than what I can bear. And now he says, God, help me in this particular area of my life. Before closing in verse 7 with a statement of confidence, the righteous will gather around me because you deal generously with me. There are no questions in the end of David's prayer. He speaks with certainty about uh, God's ability and willingness to meet this need in his life. He prays with, with faith. Now let me show you something interesting uh, about uh, Psalm 142. It's one of the few psalms, uh, prayerful psalms, that we have the opportunity to see God answer in the Scripture. Turn back in your Bible just quickly to, to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 22 that David is found in the cave. In fact, he comes into the cave at the end of chapter 21. <coughs> 1 Samuel 22 verse 1 says, So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. In addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around him, and he became their leader, about 400 men with them. Now David closes Psalm 142 with the confident statement, the righteous will gather around me because you deal generously with me. And God answers in abundance. He doesn't just send David a friend. He sends him 400 men to the cave. When we pray in faith, even during seasons of desperation and loneliness, whatever our pit of despair might be, God is able to answer exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything that we could think, hope, or imagine. And here, in ways that surely David never expected, God answers his prayer. I just want to encourage you to pray faithfully and to pray with faith, even when you don't feel like it. The interesting thing about our prayer life is that it's, it's, it's when we don't feel like praying that we need to pray the most. There's incredible value in doing what you know you ought to do even when you don't feel like doing what you know you ought to do. It's like couples who, who, who fight. And, and the, the first thing that goes when couples fight usually is any kind of affection and certainly any intimacy when that would probably go a long way toward resolving the issue. 
What Satan tricks us into doing is the very thing that exacerbates our issue, that compounds it, that makes it worse than it was before. Here, our tendency is when we don't feel like it or when we're in the pit of despair to just busy ourselves, to go do things to get our minds off the issue, when the answer may be to still ourselves before the Lord and to know that he is God. Let's look at Psalm 143. I think these two fit uh, neatly together. Here we learn how we pray when we don't know what to do. In verse 1, David says, Lord, hear my prayer. In your faithfulness, listen to my plea. And in your righteousness, answer me. Don't bring your servant into judgment, for no one alive is righteous in your sight. For the enemy has pursued me, crushing me to the ground, making me live in darkness like those long dead. My spirit is weak within me. My heart is overcome with dismay. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all you've done. I reflect on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. I'm like parched land before you. Answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. Don't hide your face from me or I'll be like those going down to the pit. Let me experience your faithful love in the morning for I trust you. Reveal to me the way I should go because I long for you. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord. I come to you for protection. Teach me to do your will for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me on level ground. Because of your name, Yahweh, let me live. In your righteousness, deliver me from trouble. And in your faithful love, destroy my enemies. Wipe out all those who attack me. For I am your servant. Here's how you pray when you don't know what to do. Number one, confess any sin. I told you earlier that Psalm 143 is often in the category of a, a prayer of repentance. But I, I, really, I really don't think that's what's here. I think of Psalm 51 as a prayer of repentance where David says, Lord, I've sinned. Forgive me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. David coming back from the sin of Uriah's murder and his adultery with Bathsheba. Here's a more general prayer about where to go. It seems that the last sentence in verse 8 is really the sentence that controls the theme. Reveal to me the way I should go because I long for you. Show me the direction. I want it to be in your direction. I want to be where you are. It's like Moses says to God when God says, you're going to go up from this place, but I'm not going. And Moses says, Lord, if you're not going, I'm not going. If you're going, I'm going. Where you are is where I want to be. David says, reveal your will to me. But discerning the Lord's will necessarily requires the confession of our sin. In fact, it's always a good thing to begin by confessing your sin before the Lord as you, as you pray. The confession of sin is always a good, healthy uh, thing for us to do. I, I'm afraid sometimes we think about repenting of our sin as something we do in the beginning of our faith journey, but the reality is that we are a people of repentance. We don't just believe in the beginning and repent in the beginning to set those elementary things behind. 
Repentance is faith is what we do every hour, every moment, every second of our life, constantly searching ourselves over, confessing our sin, confident that he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us as we do. David says in verses 1 and 2, Lord, hear my prayer. In your faithfulness, listen to my plea. In verse 2, don't bring your servant into judgment. Don't, don't bring punishment against me for any sin that I may have committed. And then, he, and then he admits in the close of verse 2, for no one alive is righteous in your sight. This, that's probably why I don't think that it's appropriate to refer to this psalm as a, a psalm of repentance. It's not that David is saying, I have this glaring sin in my life. It's that David is saying, no one alive is righteous. I know there's sin in my life. I don't have a good record of those sins. Uh, it's, not, it's not that there's this monumental issue in my life that I've come to you about. Uh, but I confess, God, that there's sin in my life. There are issues that need to be addressed. David prays in another place, Lord, reveal to me my secret sin. It's, it's not just the sins that we're aware of that we need to be dealing with. It's the sins that we're unaware of. In fact, those are the most cancerous sins. They stay so long that we're no longer sensitive to their presence in our life. Or maybe we've been conditioned by the culture or our family environment that we don't regard them as sin anymore. Those are the sins that can be your undoing if you're not very, very careful. My experience in doing pastoral counseling is that the overwhelming majority of people who come to me about sin really have a deeper issue than what they realize. Most of the people who reach out to me reach out to me about symptoms of a much, much deeper issue. It's the unseen sin that David seems to be confessing here. Where no, no one alive is without sin, and he's not using that as a cop-out. Like the way we say, well, no one's perfect. We use that to make ourselves feel better about our own imperfections. David does not take that course. He confesses his sin boldly before the Lord and pleads for mercy. If you don't know how to, or what to do or how to pray when you don't know what to do, it's good to start by confessing your sin. Secondly, acknowledge your weaknesses and your needs. Look at verses 3 and 4. For the enemy has pursued me, crushing me to the ground, making me live in darkness like those long dead. That's what they did to me. In verse 4, the result is that David says, My spirit is weak within me. My heart is overcome with dismay. I need you, Lord. That's what David says. This is how I, I feel at the moment. I need relief and, and, and help. In verses 5 and 6, he begins to pull himself out of this despair. Verse 5 says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all you've done. I reflect on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. I'm like parched land before you. A good memory is helpful when you don't know what to do, when you struggle to work in role. And what I say a good memory, remembering what God has done in your life will, will always lead to worship. I mean, you, you think we, we, could, we could just offer an opportunity to testify to God's grace in our life tonight. Think, think about for a moment when God saved you. Do you remember where you were? Some of you can remember the song that was playing. You remember the preacher that was preaching. 
You remember a godly mother, grandmother, grandfather, father who opened the Bible and shared with you the gospel. You remember the weather conditions. You remember where you were. You remember the decorations in the room. You remember the circumstances leading up to that. You remember your baptism and the people greeting you in, in the front of the church or whatever unfolded on the day that the church celebrated. I mean, if you think back about the way God has blessed you, think about when you, when you met your spouse. Your meeting was not incidental. Some of you met one another in sin and you were such an absolute mess and it's a miracle of God that he's done with you what he has. And yet you have a healthy, vibrant marriage and it's your joy. It's your joy. Think about how good God has been to you. But David says, Lord, I want you to know that I've not forgotten your past faithfulness. And in so many ways, God's past faithfulness is the down payment. It is the guarantee of God's future faithfulness. He's been with us in the past. And, and so it not only stands to reason, it's a reasonable thing to assume that he'll be faithful to us in the future. He hadn't failed me yet, has he you? David says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all you've done. I reflect on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you like parched land before you, meditating, rejoicing in all that you've done for me. David confesses his sin. He acknowledges his weaknesses and his needs. He remembers the past faithfulness of God. Number four, he prays with urgency and perseverance. Look at verse 7. Answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. I don't have long, David says. Don't hide your face from me or I'll be like those going down to the pit. God, accept that you move in my life. I'll be like a man long dead. You're my only hope, David says. In verse 8, he says, Let me experience your faithful love in the morning, for I trust in you. That is, Lord, come quickly. When I wake up in the morning, David says, would you meet me there? Would you bring resolution to the challenge that lies ahead? Would you show me what you'd have for me to do? In the close of verse 8, that's where he states the real uh, heart of his prayer, reveal to me the way I should go, because I long for you. In verse 9, David says, rescue me from my enemies, Lord. I come to you for protection. You are my safety. It's a child running to his father in a dangerous situation. It's, it's David coming to the understanding that his only hope is in the God of heaven. Here David clearly prays with urgency and with perseverance. Not, not only do we pray with faith, but we pray with a certain expectation, with an urgency. I, I, I go back in my mind often and in preaching often to the idea of praying with the spirit of Jacob. Remember when Jacob wrestled with God? He wrestled with God, and God, uh, the, the angel of God, the angel of the Lord as it's described there, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's God who meets with him there, clearly, and that happens mysteriously. God says, let me go. And, and, and Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. It's, it's, it's what Jesus describes when he talks about uh, a, a persistent neighbor who knocks at the door in the night and asks for milk and sugar. And the neighbor says, the kids are in the bed. I'm not fooling with you. 
And the neighbor knocks at the door and knocks at the door. And finally, uh, the owner of the home relents just to get rid of them. And Jesus says, pray with this kind of perseverance. Too many times our, our prayer times are far too brief. We live in a, and I'm not, I'm not talking about being repetitive or even overly verbose in our prayers. We say what we have to say and then we leave the prayer closet. It might be a good thing to stay there silently, to lay hold of God with the spirit of Jacob and to insist, Lord, I will not let you go until you prevail in this need in my life. David prays with urgency and with perseverance. Here's the last thing. And, and maybe, maybe the thing that's not often considered the way it should when it comes to making decisions, when we're praying about what to do and we don't know what to do, you need to check your motives. When, when it's not a matter of this is good and that's bad, what should I do? That's an easy decision. You do what's right. But, but say you're praying about a job. A job is open to you and you're trying to decide, is this, is this what's right for me? One of the ways you work through that is by evaluating what your motives are. Um, and, and I don't mean one job pays more than the other. That's typically how that works in most people's life. That makes that decision easier for most people. So by the way, that's not a hard decision to make. I know the direction of the Lord. Following the money. And that's not what I mean. By check your motives, I mean, do you want to grab for that because it means additional comfort in your life? Or do you want to grab for that because it increases your ability to contribute to disciple-making causes in the world? See, that, I'm not sure we think in those terms, but I'm confident that we should. Notice the way David frames verses 11 and 12 of our psalm. Because of your name, Yahweh, let me live. Because of your name, Lord, let me live. In your righteousness, deliver me from trouble, and in your faithful love, destroy my enemies. Wipe out all those who attack me, for I am your servant. Moses is really good at this, but David is too. Both Moses and David are very forthright about their personal emotional struggles. Moses is not apprehensive about saying, God, I'm in a desperate place. I'd like to kill these people today. Would you help me? <laughs> David will say, I'm in despair. I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. God, would you help me? But you, you, you watch how Moses and David pray. There is always a greater concern for the glory of God exhibited in their life than for their personal comforts. Moses says, God, help me not kill these people because if I do, it'll, dis it'll disgrace your name. And sometimes he says, God, would you please not kill us because, again, it will disgrace your name. What will the Egyptians say about the God of Israel if you just kill us all in the wilderness? Pretty good bargaining chip on Moses' part. David says, not just so that I can be comfortable not just so that my circumstances improve, not just so that my despair is alleviated, but because of your name, because of who you are, because of the promise that God had made to Moses and, and then to David, that he would do something through David that would matter not just on earth but in heaven. 
that a, that a king in the lineage of David would rule forever on the throne of Jerusalem. David understands his position within redemptive history. And, and maybe David comes short of a full understanding of his position in redemptive history. But certainly there's the beginning of some understanding, a seed of understanding. David understands that God stands to be glorified in his life as he chooses to go the way of the Lord. And really, in a fun, exciting kind of way, this is, this is where our lives accord with that of David and Moses. That God stands to be glorified in our life as we choose to follow the path that he's established for us. And I, and I just say to you here at the end of Psalm 143 that the decisions that we make in life do matter. They do. They, they matter considerably, in fact. Yes, the decisions that we make, good from bad, those are apparent. If, if you live like the devil, people will make certain judgments about your God on the basis of your lifestyle. They will evaluate the lordship of Jesus on the basis of what they see in your life. But the same is true in terms of choosing these paths. I think the most popular area or, or, or issue that arises where we're praying through and trying to decide what to do is with jobs, maybe relocating or moving. Those usually uh, sort, of, sort of go together. I talked to a few young people through the summer making decisions about where they go to school. Those are the kinds of things that can be uh, big decisions that, that need to be made. And maybe there's not a hard and, hard and fast black and white answer to the issue. But approaching those issues with a sensitivity to the Spirit, an honestness about our own sinfulness, a willingness to be forthright about our weaknesses and our needs, reflecting on the faithfulness of God, praying with urgency and with perseverance, checking our motives, asking if this is a selfish or a selfless decision that's being made. I think on the other end of that, there... there there's a much greater likelihood that we'll go the way that God would be pleased with our going. I, I, I want to be careful that I don't leave you with the impression that if you take these steps, if you pray A, B, C, D, E as it's listed on your outline, that you're going to open the door to your prayer closet and walk out with a clear answer about what tomorrow needs to look like. You know when I usually know what God's plan is for my life? about six months after it's unfolded. That's when you know for sure. But the, the, the cool thing is, looking back across those months and reflecting at how, in spite of the fact that I didn't have the big picture, prayerfully, God was orchestrating every little step, every stroke of the brush that contributed to the painting of that picture. It would be nice if God would give us the big picture sometimes, but he doesn't. And frankly, if he did, we'd foul it up. Just pray with urgency and expectation. Do what Paul describes as walking in the Spirit. And the result of that in your life will be a life well lived for the glory of the one who died for us.